Welcome to Timberline Windsor. Thanks for joining us this weekend. We are a church family that strives to let love live in every facet of our lives. We at Timberline Windsor desire everyone, every man, woman, and child that calls this church family home to be a part of Connections. To join one today, visit our website or download the Timberline app. Enjoy today's message. Good morning. Let me try one more time. Good morning. What a grand group of, great, what a great group of people that we have here this morning. Just a little family business before I start. <clears throat> Many of you know Mackenzie Matthew. Mackenzie is part of this teaching team. She's the Connections Pastor at Timberline Road. A couple of years ago, she went into one of the most significant, the most significant battle of her life, diagnosed with a, a virile, a very, virile, I'll get it right, virulent. There we go. A virulent form of breast cancer. She's gone through two years of heavy chemo treatments, all kinds of experimental things, radical surgeries, and um, has gotten better along the way, but she had a final blood test, very sophisticated, that was supposed to come back sometime back, and it came back 48 hours ago, and she posted on Caring Bridge that when it came back, there were, were no cancer cells present at all. Let's hear it for God and for Mackenzie. <clears throat> So it's some years ago when Ruth and I were in D.C., I was sitting in the Senate dining room, pretty sophisticated place, I, I'm not used to that, but I was sitting there with the chaplain of the United States Senate, Richard Halverson, and some pastoral friends, some young pastors from across the country, three or four folks. We came in and sat down, and over here, adjacent to us, was a, a larger table. Senator John McCain was there with some friends sitting there. And the only thing I had said to the young guys that were with me is, try not to gawk. I know it's a little awesome, but try not to gawk and look around and so forth. So we were doing pretty well with the gawking part until the folks at this table got up to leave. And the last person to stand up was a, um, was a large African-American man who stepped out and stepped behind my chair. And the fellow over here saw him, and he couldn't contain himself. And he jumped up and reached over and said, Champ, how are you? And this was the champ right here that'll be on the screen. Muhammad Ali, in his early 50s, suffering from Parkinson's disease, but he was the heavyweight champ of the world. And, and he used to look like this in his 20s. This was Muhammad Ali in his 20s, where his tagline was, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, you can't hit what your eyes don't see. And um, this, this young man said, so champ, what's the good word? And the champ looked at him and said, are you with these people? He said, yes. He said, you need to pick up the bill. And I just thought that was a good line. Not, not quite as good as float like a butterfly, but it was right there. So he started out as Cassius Clay years ago, became Muhammad Ali. And along the way, somebody tagged him with this line, the greatest of all time, G period, O period, A period, T period. Now we apply that to sports figures at all levels and other kinds of people. But, but let's think about this, the, the greatest of all time, because that's where our text is going to take us today in just a few moments. What might make you and me the greatest? I mean, how do we get there? 
Usually I think about achievement. You, you, you know, you got the most money or the gifts or the brains or the athletics or the academics or the science or the arts. That's how we usually talk about great. And that's fine. That's, that's rightly so. But Jesus comes along and turns that idea on its head. He flips that idea. And he does it with one question that we'll get to in just a few moments. Here's the lead up. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor John talked about the earlier part of this text. It's chapter 9, where Jesus goes up to this mountain in the northern part of Israel, and it's called the Mount of Transfiguration, because there the glory of God shows up, and he has two of the great prophets from the Old Testament show up, Elijah and Moses. You can read this in Mark chapter 9. This is Moses' first time in the promised land. I just thought I'd throw that in there. But he's there, and they have three of his disciples with him. He has three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John. Down in the valley, the bottom of the mountain, you got nine other people, and they're trying to deal with a young man who, according to the text, is demon-possessed and all kinds of stuff going on, and they can't fix him. So you got glory on the mountain, you got frustration in the valley, and as we get to this text where we are now, so we're in, in Mark, the ninth chapter, about the 30th verse, Jesus is coming down toward Jerusalem, he's making the turn. And let me put a map up here just so you can see. Jesus is up there above Capernaum. Capernaum is that town on the north end of the Sea of Galilee. And he's going to come down with his disciples over here where it says, that's Samaria. He can't get in there very easily. So he comes back across the river down here, across where Jericho is. And uh, by the way, the Dead Sea right there, that's the lowest place on the planet, 1,400 feet below sea level. Jericho's about 800 feet below sea level or something like that. Anyway, it's low. They come across, they come to Jericho, take a 45-degree turn to the west, climb 2,500 feet, go to Jerusalem, and there Jesus is going to suffer and die and rise again, so forth. What's interesting about this, and you can see this on the graphic that's out on the wall right out there when it shows the book of Mark, it shows the first nine or 10 chapters, those cover 33, Jesus dies at 33. Those are the first 33 years of his life, those first nine chapters. These next chapters, nine through 16 or 10 through 16, they're the last few days, the last few weeks. All of the gospels, about 35% of the, of the gospel text is about the last few weeks of his life. And you say, why, why would that be? Why would all, you know, you got a, all these chapters, not you know, 60% or whatever they are, all those chapters deal with 30 plus years, and then you've got these chapters dealing with just a few days. This, these chapters, the first chapters, deal with establishing his authority as the Messiah. This is not, this is not Leonardo DiCaprio standing on the front of the Titanic saying, I am king of the world. This is the most high God saying, I'm king of the universe, and I'm gonna show you that. So it establishes his authority in these first nine or 10 chapters, the last chapters explain his mission, why he came, what he did, what the key issues are, and all of that. And that's, so we're making the turn today, and he makes the tur as he makes the turn for home, he starts teaching the disciples. He always teaches them. Uh, there's this phrase that's used, and it's still true overseas a lot, is that they have what they call peripatetic teachers. That means people who walk around and they have a little group with them, right? Rabbis walk around, they got a group, and they're teaching, 
as they go. Those of you who take hikes, those of you who have been with park rangers, you go up there and you hike and they're pointing that out and that out and the flora and the fauna and all that. It's a powerful way to teach. And almost all of Jesus' teaching, not all, but almost all, occurs in context like this. So we're going to read a few verses and I'd like you to join me in reading them, if you would, reading out loud. And, uh, you know, you don't have to, you can take a pass, but if you, it'd help me, okay? So let's just start reading right here in Mark 9.30. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. Let's just hold it there for just a moment. When I don't understand, a lot of times I go quiet. I mean, it's rare for me to go quiet, okay? But, but there's silence in this moment because he said something to them that just is totally out of context. You know, they're seeing these fantastic things. Three of them have just come off the glory of the mountain. But they've seen him heal people, calm storms, feed 5,000 people, all these kinds of things. So they're into it. I'd be into it. And then he says this. He's already said it once, but he's saying it again. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Well, there are two parts of that that I find as possibles. Be delivered into the hands of men, they'll kill him. That third part, that's not even in my universe. I don't even get that. So I'm not surprised they didn't. I don't understand, right? And they were afraid to ask him about it. So they kind of paused. That's one silent place. There's one other silent place in the text. Let's keep going. They came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what are you arguing about on the road? What, excuse me, what were you arguing about on the road? Join me right here. But they kept quiet because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest and their silence again. I don't want to, I want, in the first part, I don't want to show that I don't understand. In the second part, I don't want to show that I'm stupid. Well, or embarrassed or whatever it is. I'll just read the rest of it. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone, so here he, he gives them a template for greatness. Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them, taking the child in his arms. He said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. He didn't say 23 of these. He says one. Whoever welcomes one of these in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me essentially only, but the one who sent me. So the crux of this text, the pivot moment in this text, he, you know, they, they're not getting it, but, but he doesn't accuse them. He doesn't even correct them at that point. What he does is ask a question. What were you arguing about on the road? Those of you who grew up with siblings at your house, how many times did you hear your parents say, hey, what are you kids fighting about? And how many heard that? Can you just give me, you can confess. How many of you told the truth? No, you don't have to answer that question. But the point, you know, if, if you got siblings, you're going to fight. You know, you probably won't kill each other. You might want to, but you don't, you know, you, that's what happens. I mean, w what this shows here is, it, well, don't you hate it 
when you get called out by someone you admire. I mean, it's just, it's just embarrassing. But they kept quiet because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. What does this tell us about him? It tells us they're human. Humans disagree. Have you noticed that? That human, I mean, if, if you're a couple and you ever built a house together and you're still married, good on you. You know, this is, I mean, a thousand decisions to make. You have deep arguments into the night about the color of the front room, and once it's paid and the furniture's in there, you don't, it's crazy what we, what we disagree about. Ruth helped me yesterday. She, can't, she, she was on the internet looking for pillows, like for chairs. Right? And she said, Dick, I, I read this great line. When somebody says, why can't you agree with me? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands of who has said that or who's heard it. But when you say, why can't you agree with me? The answer is, because if I agree with you, then both of us would be wrong. <laughs> I love that. It's not even the Bible, but I just thought I'd throw that in here. But, but you can hear him arguing. How come, how come you three guys, you get to go everywhere. You went up on the mountain. You... What, and, you know, and somebody says, well, why didn't I get to go? I'm the oldest. Somebody else says, well, I met him first. And somebody else says, well, I've got the most experience. I mean, pick a topic. We'll just, we'll just fight about it. And because these folks, I think, are assuming that to have X access means to have favor. I think that's right. If I like you, I'll give you access to my world. It's called hospitality. I invite you into my space. It does mean you have faith for whatever reason. We don't know why Jesus chose Peter, James, and John and not Andrew, Bartholomew, and Judah. We don't know that answer. But we're equal in a couple of places. We're all equal in our shortcomings. Scripture says all have sinned. That's a word that's out of fashion, but it means to miss the mark, to fall short. And sin doesn't have to be with me falling short of you doesn't mean how do I compare to you that's not the comparison the comparison is how do I compare to the most high God well you know we all fall short the second place we're equal is when God gives us his grace through Jesus so none of us fall short because he doesn't when we step into him all of a sudden we're equal and we have access and we have favor that's how that works Two of the greatest words you'll ever hear are in Christ. When Paul the Apostle writes, here, here's a guy who is essentially a religious terrorist who killed people like us or put us in jail at the very least or tortured us at the very, you talk about waterboarding back in the day. That's who this guy was. And he has this powerful encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus and, and it changes everything. And, and when he writes, he, he says, in Christ, there is no male or female barbarian or free, you know, no Jew or Greek. All the dividers in his culture. He said, in Christ, you don't see that. It's, it's sort of like the astronauts being on the trip to the moon and they look back on the, on the earth, this little blue ball hanging out here in a universe with a gazillion planets and stars. And they say the fascinating thing is that when you see it from space, there are no dividing lines. There are no geopolitical boundaries. There are no ethnic rivalries when you see it that way. And here's the most high God who says that. So we, we might be equal in this. And you say, hey, that guy was a lot worse than I. That's not the comparison. 
comparison's not you and I or you and me. It's this other comparison. So, so he's, you know, and you say, well, shouldn't I try to be the best? Well, absolutely. I'm, I'm not, this is not saying you shouldn't get it right. This isn't saying that if you're a builder, you don't go to the nth degree to make sure the joints are right. I can't, you know, Jesus was a stonemason carpenter. That's the understanding, right? I can't imagine him working on a door frame for a little Palestinian house, and it doesn't quite fit. He's, ah, it's good enough. These guys won't care. They won't see it, right? This is not the God who takes shortcuts. This is not the God who settles for less. This is the God who says, I have designed you with precision, and I give you the possibilities of doing things right. I want to be able, you know, I don't want a guy, I don't want to buy a car from a guy who says, you know, this, this car uh, is, is like 92% good. I really don't want to go there. And, and here, so this isn't about, this isn't a message about not being good or trying to get it right. This is, what is it that Jesus says characterizes the greatness of his father and the greatness of the kingdom? And so what I would say is that in the kingdom of God, there is no room for inordinate, like off the charts, raw ambition or raw self-promotion. There's no space for that in the kingdom of God. Jesus explains it this way. Three phrases, okay, I'll, let me do the first one. The last. He says, if you want to be first, be the very last. That's where I go quiet. I'm saying, really? I, you know, so I'll go quiet more than twice in this text. If you want to be first, be the very last. Literally, the text says, if you want to be first, be the last of all. I confess to loving food. Some of you may have noticed. Um, when we were married, Ruth brought food language and food practice to our table. She fixed a meal one night early on in our marriage and she said, Dick, come on in. I'm taking up the food. It's time to take up the food. I'd never heard that phrase, take up the food. I said, what? where did you get that? She said, oh, I get that. My, my grandparents, they were Hoosiers, Indiana people, and that's a phrase that they use in Hoosier land, I guess, you know, take up the food. So I got, I got used to that, but then she had this other part that when we started having children and then we had grandchildren, her phrase was, um, we eat last. Kids eat first. And I'm going, what's that about? She said, well, that, that was my grandpa again, George Harvey Presnell, born in a place called Center Point, Indiana, which is a dot in Clay County in the south part of Indiana. And when he was three, his, his uh, father died. His mother remarried, but it was in a, sort of an abusive thing from the stepfather. And by the time he was eight, George Harvey, who had a mind of his own, said, I'm out. He went across town to where his grandparents lived and moved in with them. Well, his grandparents in their 50s had 12 children, one at least of which still at home. And he said, you know, they got a lot going on. And so he said, I always ate leftovers in the kitchen. So they gave him a space, but they had this thing they did, but what it built into him was this idea that when I have children or grandchildren, they're not gonna be eating leftovers in the, in, in the kitchen. Kids eat first, I eat last. I've gotten used to that. And it's, and it's a good thought. 
you know, until they get to be teenagers, then they take it all. I'm just putting that out there, you know. So, no. And rightly so. And then Jesus doubles down. It's not just you need, you need to be the last of all. He says, and the servant of all. I get serving the rich and the famous. You know, I, I get that, okay? And because they're folks that if I serve them well, they can help me out. They can give me a leg up. They can give me access. They can connect me with people. So, I, you know, I'll, I'll do that, right? But all, he says, he says, I want you to serve people who don't have the capacity to give back. I have two favorite questions. Those of you who know me know this. And when I get the chance to speak at university commencements, this is the talk I give, this little piece right here. First of all, you have 15 minutes or 12 minutes at a university commencement because you are the only guy between that kid, or young man or woman, and their $100,000 diploma over here, right? So you need to get out of the way so they can get to it. And I'll say, you know, this is a gift-giving day. Some of you will get a nice dinner. Some of you might get keys to a BMW. I don't know. I, I'm bringing you neither of those. What I'm bringing you as a gift for your life is two questions. If you use these two questions, your life will be full. Your life will be productive. Here's the first one. Where were you born and brought up? Any relationship can start with that question. It's a non-threatening question. It's just the nature of things, right? It's just how it is. And so, where were you born and brought up? Even if you moved around, even if you were in the military and changed, even if you were in foster care, any of those, it's a valid question. It's something that's back there. It's not where I am now. The second question, and, and that one fuels or helps, it's an entry point to the understanding of another person. Where were you born and brought up? Second question fuels friendship, and it's this one. Anything I can do for you? Anything I can do for you? I'll tell you the result of that question. If you use that question with integrity, anything I can do for you? You'll get three things. One is your life will always have meaning. Second is you will always have friends. And the third is you'll never be out of work. Oh, you may not get money for it, but you'll never be out of work, just saying. Here is, this, here is this thing that Jesus is saying that's saying, you know, it looks like sacrifice to be last. It looks like sacrifice to serve. But the truth of it is they get something and you get something, and it's a win-win. Everybody wins. And we're saying, how do we win by being last? Well, if we try it, if we work at it, we start finding out how that works. And then he goes on and says the child. So, so we have the last, the servant, and the child. Mark 9, 36, he took a little child whom he placed among them, taking the child in his arms. He said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me only, but the one who sent me. What does welcoming a child have to do with being the greatest? In this culture, in the Middle East at that time, and in lots of cultures around the world, there are a gazillion children, and 
they don't count. They have no status or standing in the culture. They're there. Uh, out east, when you go out east and they have all these little bugs. Now, we've had, in our experience, in 15 years, we've never had more bugs than this year because of all the rain, I think. And you got mosquitoes and you got this and that and the other. But there's some little tiny bugs that back east they call noceums. Any of you heard that phrase, noceums, right? Kids in this culture were kind of noceums. You know? They're there, but they're not there. They're the lowest. They don't have standing. And it, this comes up again in the next chapter. This comes up in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this business about child. And in one place, he says, if you welcome a child, you welcome me. And in another place, he says, if you become like a child, you, you get to understand the kingdom. One of my favorite stories about a kid is the kid in, who goes with his mom to a restaurant in New York City, walks in and sits down, and the waitress comes over after they had a chance to look and says, so what do you have? And the little boy says, I'll take a hot dog, fries, and a Coke. And she turns to the mom and says, ma'am, what would you have? She said, I'll take a Caesar salad and water. And Jimmy here will have um, a grilled chicken, string beans, and milk. And the waitress says, let me see if I have this right. He said, um, you, ma'am, will have a Caesar salad with water, and Jimmy here will have hot dog, fries, and a Coke, and turned and walked away. And the kid looked at his mom and said, hey, mom, she thinks I'm real. This is the God who knows you're real. This is the God who says, when you approach me with a childlike heart, when you approach me, when you come into my space, into my world, I welcome you. And when the people around me welcome you and the people around me have that attitude, there's something profound. This is the God who knows whoever and wherever you are, you're real. Apparently, according to this text and others, apparently greatness is found in paying attention to, welcoming people who do not have position, wealth, access, title, office. But when I welcome a child, and when I welcome a child, I'm not welcoming and no see him, and nobody. I'm welcoming, I'm welcoming Jesus in disguise. Not only that, I don't just get Jesus, I get his dad. I get, I, it's a twofer. And, and you say, well, how do I get my head around that? I don't know that we do get our heads around that. I think we work at getting our hearts around that. But there's something about that idea that just niggles at me and has for decades that whole idea about when you welcome a child, when you come in, and Matthew in the 25th chapter says, when I was in prison and you visited, when I was naked and you clothed me, when I was hungry and you fed me. You, when, when you did that to that person, you were doing it to me. I would, I would just pray today that the Holy Spirit works in our hearts and minds to try to see how that that idea percolates, that truth percolates. So here we have it, the last, the servant, the child. Jesus will end up in just a few days. He's coming down out of Capernaum, going to Samaria, can't get in there very easily, comes across the river down, cross through Jericho, 2,500, climb of 2,500 feet or 3,000 up to Jerusalem where it will be handed over to men to die, crucified, beaten, and uh, they put him on a cross, and he will suffer the fate of two kinds of people, 
servants and criminals. Those were the people that the Romans crucified that way. Otherwise, just kill them, just spare them, we're done. But that horrific uh, suffocation, because you're up here and you can't breathe and your fluids are filling your body, you die by suffocation, inch by inch, minute by minute, hour by hour. So there he is, pinioned on the cross like some insect up against the night sky. And he's, and he's trash-talked in the middle of it. I mean, they've already beaten him and spit on him and been sarcastic with him. Then they put a sign up in three languages, Jesus, King of the Jews. It's the last place you would want to be. And he's calling out to his father, and he's alone. And he will absolutely, once and for all, show the 12 what he had taught them and talked about to them over those three years, but specifically those last few days and weeks. Jesus is the greatest of all time, really? Doesn't look like it. Looks like the smallest, looks like the worst. But see, the deal is this. Life is not about what it looks like in the middle. Life is not about what it looks like in the middle. Many of you have discovered this is one of my favorite lines. Many of you discovered that life is what happens when you expected something else. I don't know anybody whose life is like that. I've never met anybody. There may be somebody, but even Jesus, king of the universe, not like that, not his earthly life. Our lives are this way. And so Mackenzie Matthews, two years ago, is here. Now it's this. Could be this for other reasons along the way for any of us. And the key to greatness is what is reality at the end when this body falls off. Scripture says that this body falls off. Ruth and I look at each other quite often and say, you know, we're on the clock. You say, yeah, don't remind me. We're on the clock, you know. It's winding down. This is, this is not like when we're 21. You know, this is way down the pike here. But one day this body falls off and scripture says, I get a new one of these. It's, it's going to be slim with a head of hair like you would not believe. It's going <laughs> to be great. But here, here, greatest is not the accolade that you get in the middle of life. Greatest is the accolade you get at the end. Well done, good and faithful servant. So here we are, Jesus, the greatest finish in the history of the world. He came, he walked, he healed, he served, he sacrificed. He took our sins, he took the last position. And on the cross, he cries out these words. It is finished. Fini. It's not like the end of a movie. He's saying, the mission I came for is accomplished. I took the sins of both on myself. I took the sins of Pastor John on myself. I took the sins of... All the people that have ever lived or will ever live, going forward, I took those sins on myself so that they could know my grace, so they could know my power, they could have the possibility of joy that goes on forever. Finish line's a big deal. Um, my friend Barry Black, who's chaplain in the United States Senate, wonderful guy. When I said, so Barry, what do you... What do you want to do? He said, I want to, I want to do what one of my preacher friends said, an old man, when I asked him that question. 
He said, Barry, I don't want to come into the harbor and drown in shallow water. As we approach the finish line, whether that finish line is 40 years away or 60 years away or two years away, help us because we understand something about last and servant and child. Have a stance that blesses the world and those around us. And in the process, we get the overflow of that. I have a, I have a favorite story that I get to tell once in a while. I haven't told it for a long time. And I heard it from a friend, Gene Jackson. He's a fellow that I met in Tennessee, but he was brought up in Pahuska County, Oklahoma. And he said, I was brought up in a little school out in the country. Weren't too many of us. And I had some challenges because I was a preacher's kid and I stuttered. So I wasn't like at the top of the food chain in, in terms of how kids sometimes are. He said, but I had a friend who had more challenges than I did and his name was Billy. And Billy was a Down syndrome child and many of you know Down syndrome and these wonderful children, a lot of ways, tremendously affectionate. And uh, we have a family member who lived to the age of 35. He was a Down syndrome person. But Billy was not athletic. He was overweight. He, was, he couldn't move very fast. And he could only say a couple of things. Let's go eat and let's play ball. He said, but everybody loved Billy in the school. And so when we broke for recess, some of you remember those old recesses where you go out and you have enough time to choose up sides and so forth. And you usually have the, you know, the studly athletes who are the captains. And so they, but the, but the rule was when you chose for baseball, because Billy loved baseball. When you chose for baseball, if you were the first chooser, you always chose Billy first. And then when Billy got up to bat, eye-hand coordination was nowhere to be found. Billy just put the bat out there and the pitcher had to hit it. If you had to come up within five feet, throw 50 pitches, you ain't going anywhere until you hit Billy's bat. And then Billy always got on base. That was the deal. If you had to overthrow first, Billy always got on base. And the final thing was Billy always scored. And he didn't, even though, you know, in the larger sense, it may not have counted, but Billy didn't just saunter across the plate. Billy scored. He'd come to home plate and he'd go like that. They had a county-wide track and field meet. And Billy signed up for everything. 100-yard dash, 200, quarter mile, long jump. Well, I don't know. I probably didn't have shot put, but whatever. It, Billy signed. And he couldn't do anything really very well. So the big crowd there from the county, and Billy's in the race. And so they finish the 100 yards. You know, it's done like that. They're getting their prizes. And here's Billy coming down. And somebody in the crowd kind of snickers and says, look at the little... So we get there. 200 yards, same deal. They're done getting their prizes. And here's Billy way back and he's come. But, but somebody says, that's Billy. Then they have the quarter mile. I don't know if that's once or twice around. I can't remember. But anyway, they take off. And the guys finish. And Billy's still over there coming around that second turn. And as he comes down the back stretch, People start coming down out of the stands. And as he gets to this corner over here, although there are all kinds of, and by the time he gets to the home stretch, there are people all over the infield and then 
and they start running with Billy toward the finish line. And when they get to the finish line, Billy, of course, his hands in the air, they hoist him onto their shoulders and they do a victory lap with Billy on their shoulders because Billy didn't come first. What he did was finish. And Gene would say, nobody remembers who won that race, but everybody remembers who finished. He said Billy came to church and his seat was right over there. And one thing you didn't want to do is get in Billy's seat. You didn't want to go there because that was a problem. But he said sometimes when we'd be worshiping in song like we did earlier today, or sometimes when the preacher would be preaching, Billy's hands would start doing this because a lot of times people who we don't think have the mental acuity for this or that or the other, there's something about their spirit that is sensitive to the God who made them. He said when, when Billy's hands went like this, oftentimes the, the spirit would sort of sweep the congregation and there'd be other people worshiping and praising him. Here we have the greatest of all time. Greatest of all time is the one who takes the last position, who serves at every chance, and then embraces the one overlooked or not seen. We might be John or Susan or Jose or Maria in our external form, but perhaps we could be Billy in our hearts. Perhaps we could understand that wherever we are in the middle of the race, however tension-filled it is or painful it is at the moment, it's not about the middle of the race. It's about the end. The greatest of all is the one who has those attitudes, the last servant, the child, and finishes. I believe for that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for this moment. Thank you for Jesus not blowing the disciples out of the water when they didn't understand or when they were caught out because they were doing goofy stuff like human stuff. But he keeps teaching and then he shows them what it means to be least and last and servant child. Lord, for those here who really don't want to go to work in the morning because it's tense there or there's a problem, there's a situation, or it's just been a struggle these last months. May your spirit be alive in them. May your heart be alive in them. And help them to think about what it means to be last and to serve and to have a child's heart. We're grateful. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. We hope you encountered the love and power of Jesus in today's service. If you're interested in giving, for joining serving opportunities, and much more, visit TimberlineChurch.org connect. Have a great week. Go be the church and let love live.